I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in a job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying, and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me, or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Hey, Hatkez, welcome to the show. Let's go straight into it. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Who am I? Wow, it's an <laughs> interesting question for morning time. The one thing that I like most is to invent things. I can't stand still. Uh, it's kind of expand everything that I do. But I really think that, I mean, uh, going uh, back, you know, uh, that my uh, always the motivation in life that I had was to prove that I can, and that prove that no matter where you came from, that you are, I mean, you are able to create your own life and your own uh, path. I'm currently a mother of two. Another one is on its way. I'm co-founder and CEO at Papaya Global. Uh, started two bootstrapping, put two bootstrap companies beforehand, a relocation source and expert source. And basically, I love swimming. I love Pilates. I love everything that drives adrenaline. In terms of sport, I really like keeping it very busy. Yeah. So you said that, um, you said that uh, uh, you were about creating kind of your own reality and being able to do everything you wanted, uh, not letting anyone else uh, set the boundaries of your life for you. So the question is, does becoming a CEO and a co-founder create more freedom than, than it takes? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, the short answer is yes. It creates more freedom and it creates tons of responsibility because at the end of the day, you are responsible to many, 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 many people's uh, life, happiness, uh, meaning. So, I mean, I think that there is a freedom if you are able to take this responsibility and you like the responsibility. If, you, if you're not really happy with this responsibility, so the freedom is becoming uh, quite annoying for you. But I like it. I really like it. So, what the time in your life where that responsibility felt too big or maybe it was taking away from other aspects of your life that you didn't want to handle it? Of course. <laughs> You've been in a uh, CEO roles for well over a decade, right? I think you first yes. took on the, the CEO chair at 2007, if I remember correctly. Around 2008, yes. 2008. So yeah. 12 years as the boss lady. Yeah. First, I've, I've always been a manager. So, you know, I mean, even if you're not a CEO, I mean, if you have, if you're managing people, you have responsibility. Obviously, I, when I founded my first company, it was during a 2009 a, a financial crisis. So we had quite a lot and it was a bootstrap company. So at the end of the day, I didn't have investors to back me up. I mean, if I didn't have 
enough uh, customers, enough revenues. I needed to solve solutions of how do I pay those employees at the end of the month. I also had a case where I had a partner at this time. I mean, a few, few years after I established my first company, I sold 30% of the company to a, to a partner. It didn't went very well. And when we wanted to split apart, it was one of the darkest days in my life. It was, I mean, the way that he wanted it to happen was really making or, or creating for me a huge issue of how do I finance the company from this point on. We had quite a lot of uh, different uh, views on how to do it correctly. And yeah, and this is the moment when you feel bad on your, for yourself because, I mean, you said, okay, I created this reality. I mean, I, I, I got into this situation myself. But also because you understand that it's not only you. I mean, that the day after you have responsibility for other people's life, uh, for other people's job. I mean, there are some moments where you said, oh, I wish I could just go and swim in the beach. And, you know, you know, and know when I, I, I'm going to be out of the water, I'll have zero emails, zero phone calls, zero responsibility. But it's kind of addictive. So, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, you, you go back to it and, and you solve it, which is part of it. And you become stronger and you take more responsibility. So back to that specific situation where uh, that investor partner wanted to break out of the company. I mean, you, you, you're facing a financial setback. You have to either buy him out or find a different way of financing the company while keeping the show on the road. How do you even start solving that? First, I think that you show must go on. Uh, so, I mean, you know, your employees needs to still to have the confidence that you're on top of things. And those things happen. I mean, you know, even with in Papaya, before we uh, raised the last uh, financial round, uh, you always have those points when you're saying, I'm not able, I I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to, to make this round. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to be on the timeline that I need in order to finance the company. So you always have those moments and you need to kind of be two different persons. One of them needs to be super strong, super confident uh, and continue the show. Uh, the other one needs to <laughs> go back home, uh, lock himself in the room and say, okay, what do I do now? And uh, figure it out. And I, I think that, you know, uh, other people, obviously, uh, it's a very known sentence. CEO is a very, very lonely uh, position at the end of the day, because there are so many things that you need to figure it out. And if you consult with others, you understand that they might want to help you, but they are fear for the effects that it will create for them. But uh, one of the tricks or the, the tactics that I'm always using is really trying to imagine what is the worst case scenario, the worst, the worst ever that can happen from this, uh, from this situation. And then like kind of move from here to a bit better case and a bit better case and a bit better case. And what's the most optimistic case and see that things are not that bad or probably will not be that bad. And that are also are in some kind of control. So what are your, as a CEO, what are your stress behaviors when you realize you're getting into a sticky point in time where things are starting to add up? What changes in, in your behavior that the balance between the empathic in that to the, to the problem solving in that? What does it look like when you are under stress? I'm becoming very, very hedgy. So, I mean, it's a nightmare to speak with me. I have zero patience to things that are currently not in my mind. Uh, I think it's very, I mean, people that knows me, knows me. I mean, and they know that, okay, if it's not super important now, I mean, let's not deal with it. This is not the time. Uh, she has other things that she is currently solving. I'm a very short temper. So, I mean, uh, when I swim, it's more balanced. But when I'm not, it's, it's a bit more uh, hard to balance this. Um, but I think that, I mean, eventually I'm trying to take some step back in order to be more with myself and more uh, to solve it. So how do you handle transparency and the need to bring people on board with you and the company's journey versus solving things on your own, in your room, before bringing them the complete solution? So I think it's a mixture of transparency and assuring your company you are responsible and you're on top of things. It doesn't mean that they have to be uh, involved or they have to know everything that happens. They don't need the whole metrics, all of the numbers doesn't mean anything for them. But when we were hiring people, I mean, on the very early stage, I always told them that I'm trying to manage 
a very responsible budget to assure that I can hire them in the next two years. I can't promise them more than this currently, but under the current situation, I mean, I can promise them two years uh, in the company. When we are fundraising, uh, we are normally, I mean, the company knows that we are fundraising. Uh, the company knows if it takes more time. The company knows, uh, and before the, the recent uh, round, we also told them uh, that we are going to hire, uh, to, to freeze hiring for a while uh, because we want to assure that uh, we are taking a responsible approach and we need them, obviously, to be more committed to it because it means that they might work harder uh, while we are hiring, uh, while we're on freeze hiring. So you need to keep them involved. Obviously, uh, you need you, you don't never overpromise. I mean, I don't want to overpromise anything to anyone. I want also to assure that if I'm in control and I feel that I'm in control or I can solve this, this is how they feel. And I feel COVID was the best example for this because one day you need to assure to a whole company that uh, first that you know what you're doing, second uh, that the world uh, is collapsing, but you, the company will uh, make it uh, true. I feel or what we we decided to do and I decided to do in this uh, period is not to tell them things that I don't know because I can't guarantee anything. I couldn't guarantee when everything started that we will not have 50% churn. I mean, I didn't know it might happen. Uh, and we told them that we will be, uh, we will take a very responsible approach and we will uh, obviously update them as things happen. Uh, and we might need to decrease salaries. We might need to restructure uh, the company. Um, we don't do it for now, but we need to be prepared for everything. Um, and I think that this is how you, you, you basically take your employees and you engage them and they're becoming your partners. How to do? No, it's easy to do. <laughs> It's actually very easy to do because you don't you don't need to overthink this. I mean, you're just really going with your own truth and this is your decision. I mean, whatever it takes. And uh, at the end of the day, I think, again, on, on earlier periods, I mean, we had much more churn of employees because they didn't, they weren't sure that we will deliver what we promised. They weren't sure that we will uh, raise the round. They had concerns. They didn't know if they trust what we are saying or what we are uh, aiming to do. But over time, when people see that at the end of the day, first, you don't overpromise anything. And second, you keep them really with the, the honest that you the honest that you have currently, the truth that you have currently. I think that it creates a kind of trust that goes for, for a long time. So walk us through the company, the proposition. Sure. So we started Papaya with a very clear vision. We wanted to create total workforce management platform, which means that we want to assist companies to have one source of data and one source of workflow to manage all of their global workers, wherever they are, however they've been employed. And currently it's a very, very fragmented market. When you're looking on the market, you have contractors, you have PO employees, you have payroll entities and so on, and it creates a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, different uh, workflows and a lot of data sources in the organization that needs to be managed on a monthly basis. When we need to simplify it, what we are doing is really creating a system that can provide you with an answer to very two simple questions on an ongoing basis. How many workers works for you and what's the total cost? And basically takes everything downstream from there. Um, we chose the name Papaya because we are payment enabler and this is what we create. We are creating a compliant way to employ and to pay employees globally. So to supercharge our conversation, uh, let me add some context. Papaya raised $45 million in November of last year, of 2019, a substantial amount of money for any company in any industry, in any market. Where is this momentum coming from? What makes Papaya such a compelling uh, proposition for investors right now? So payroll is something, it's, it's basically, it's the basic relationship between employee and company. It will always be there. It will always be complicated because uh, payroll is not just, I'll hand over money to you. I mean, it has lots of compliance and taxes and benefits that are in charge, uh, that are involved in this. And it's super complex when you're looking on a global operation. Uh, and as the world, even before COVID, I mean, as we grow with companies and we scale and we becoming more and more uh, globally, it's just becoming a huge pain point in the organizations. And I think that what we created in Papaya is really, we managed to simplify it uh, in a way that at the end of the day, investors look on metrics and they look of how the customers uh, adopt Papaya and what's their reaction. I'm very happy to say that uh, at 
all those three parameters, uh, papaya is, I mean, one of the best in class. Uh, we have a very, very super small uh, sales and marketing operation, and yet we are growing or tripling the numbers year over year uh, because uh, we get tons of market referrals and word-to-mouth clients that are uh, recommending us. Um, and we are solving real problem, as you asked me before, if I can be someone else. So I know how to solve real problems. I don't know how to invent cool things, unfortunately, but I can really solve like real problems that are, you know, on the operational side. This is, uh, this is what I like to do. And this is what we created in Papaya. And I think that when we crossed, I mean, when we started, the market was very suspicious and it was like, is it a real problem? How big it is? And so on. And being a founder of a company, it's never easy. Uh, it's not a journey that is always uh, full of uh, success, and you see all of the nice PR in the in the in the newspaper. Uh, uh, the company raised this and this millions of dollars. You don't hear about how many times they they heard the no, and how many meetings they went uh, they they left with a negative answer, or they just received a a, a bad feedback explaining them that it's worth nothing. So yeah, it's still part of the journey. It's not the end game, but uh, I mean, we live for this, obviously for the feedback, for the positive feedbacks. This is what we eat for, for breakfast. So it's always nice. What about the world changed in order to make Papaya such an important company? First, compliance is becoming much, much, much more difficult. So uh, every country is trying to protect more uh, their employees, their labor laws. Uh, to, I mean, and it's the easiest thing is to basically to hand over responsibility to employers to tell them, okay, you cannot terminate employees just, you know, like in the American movies, take your box and go home. Uh, you need to do a process. In it, it's, mu- it's much more complex than this. You need to pay them uh, severance and pension and so on. So Labor laws and compliance are becoming much more complex. If you need to manage labor laws and compliance in 20 different countries because your company works in 20 different countries, it's almost like reading 20 different books in 20 different languages all at once and understand them. (laughs) So this is basically what we're doing. And it will never go back or, I mean, not in the near future to be easier because, I mean, nobody has a real interest to make it easier. How did the company change from after you've raised the round so first, I'm always saying that you're always as good as your round and then everything you start over and you have new KPIs and new uh, deliverables that you need to deliver to the investor that just invested uh, because obviously they are looking forward, not backwards. You need to reshuffle everything to ensure that you can uh, meet your time, your, your, your goals, your KPIs and everything that you just uh, presented. And this, this is why they invested. So everything is becoming more on a speed uh, uh, growth and accelerated growth, mainly because you have the funds, so you don't have any excuses. We always uh, kept a nice growing phase of three weeks year over year, uh, but obviously those three weeks are becoming more challenging uh, year over year, and we are still keeping them, so it makes it much more challenging. Hiring is always one of the most uh, critical things because... Having an organization of 20, 50, 100, 150 employees and 500 is not the same organization. So you need to be more structured. You need to bring uh, some uh, rules. Uh, You have some departments. Uh, Not the fun stuff, uh, by the way, that the founders really like, because this is not why they are starting cool ideas to have policies and handbooks. But this is part of uh, just growing the organization. you have investors, obviously, as I mean, as you are uh, bringing serious investors to the table, your responsibilities to reporting, to be accurate in what you're promising, to deliver is becoming bigger. Um, there are no gray. So, I mean, they expect you to be accurate. They expect to, uh, to really uh, to show that you're standing behind everything that uh, you are promising. Uh, and also that you know how to navigate and manage uh, also uh, hard times. When we started COVID, we had this dialogue with our investors of should we basically decrease budget? Should we uh, decrease currently the headcount? How do we plan for this period? I took a a decision that was not, uh, I mean, some of my investors were against it, that I'm going to keep exactly everything the same. Uh, We did very, very minor changes because nothing critical changed uh, with our industry or with our clients yet. And I don't want to do changes before I see a real impact. So I don't want to react before something happens. Um, some of them thought that it, it was a mistake. I thought that it was the right move to do because otherwise you will stop the growth 
uh, the future growth that you are planning. Uh, and I mean, for now, I'm happy to say that I was uh, right with the approach because we kept a very, very aggressive growth during this period, which actually enable us currently uh, to grow even more uh, the, the current, the, the, the actual projection of this year. That's very brave. Where was the insight coming from? Didn't you like see, I'm sure that in your network, CEOs, founders, they're letting employees go left, right and center, they're, they're stopping grounds, they're pivoting products and you're saying, no, we're staying the course. Yes, because first I think that, you know, behaving like the market is the easier thing to do, but uh, you really need to take very uh, wise judgment here and to understand where, what you want to do as a leader and not just following the industry, there was this terrible Sequoia letter sent to all saying, um, basically just shut down the company, go to the shelter and wait there for a year. Uh, and I, I received this letter in, I don't know, like 10 copies, copies of it. And yeah, I mean, I cannot lie and say that it just was a very easy decision. I had, I don't know, two weeks of very stressful time, a sleepless night. I was constantly thinking, what is the right thing to do? Eventually, I decided to trust the company, to trust the employee, to trust the metrics that we see and to continue forward. How do you continue forward with the resistance from the investors? Like, is that is how to do? No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, first, it, it's part of the dialogue. It's 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 the same when you're raising funds. I mean, you 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 constantly hear no, you, you hear much more no than yes. So how do you move forward? How do you build a company when you constantly hear people telling you that you're not in the right direction, you're not in the right market? It's not a real. Uh, it's much harder to be honest than investors that already uh, showed <laughs> some uh, confidence in you and invested in you. So I think that as we spoke before about employees, if you have some rational explanation behind your uh, basically behavior, it's not just you know out of the blue and you can really show them that you know what you are doing. And I, I told them, I mean, listen, I mean, we are going to evaluate this decision on a weekly basis. It's not just a decision that I'm not going to reopen until the end of the year, until it's going to be too late. But I'm not willing to do anything currently to uh, let the people think that we don't support them before really something happens. I'm not willing to make the company or the investment, I mean, better just on, on behalf of my employees. I need them to win this with me. It's not always easy, but I think that, you know, when investors are investing in a CEO, they know what's, you know, that they're taking. Uh, so part of it. Sometimes startups find themselves in a negative moment that they can't stop because they've already committed to it. So they read the market, but they use it to reaffirm their decision. And then, you know, a certain product direction goes a long way or a certain higher you know, we're not taking steps on it because, and, and here you had a positive momentum and, and you, were, you were strong to stick to it without pausing to uh, reevaluate, yes, but not change course. Was there any time where you said like, oh my God, I'm this close to pressing control alt Z on, on this decision? Yes, many days. <laughs> you hear, you, you, you read the newspaper, you, you read, I mean, and you said, okay, I mean, it's going to hit us, it's going to hit us, it's going to hit us. So, yeah, but I think that um, we, we spoke before, but you need to make those scenarios. What's the worst case scenario? What's the most optimistic scenario? Where do I believe that, I mean, it will go? And sometimes you just need to stop thinking. Just do what you want to do. Just really look on the metrics. And honestly, I mean, we saw a very positive momentum from the market. So it might change. It might change until you, we will broadcast this. Uh, and the world will collapse and nobody will watch this and that's it. But um, but you need to take the decision that is right currently. I think that if you manage the company, you can't just rely on people that are coming when it's comfortable, when it's good or bad and giving you advices. And then they are just, you know, taking off and leaving you to, with, with those advices. Who do you need to thank for? for being able to produce at such a high level with such velocity throughout all these years? What enables you to do the work you're doing outside of your own curiosity and competence and so on? So in the, in, in the, in the current, I need to thank for my spouse, obviously. My partner, he's great. He's uh, super supportive. It's not a one-man show. You always need a support and somebody that is taking, a, or, or, or taking responsibility on the things that you are not taking. Uh, and he's really enabling me to do it. And it's amazing. 
past looking, uh, for sure to my parents, I didn't had a very happy childhood. My mom uh, was uh, basically um, six and I was since, since, since I was four years old. Uh, so she was in kind of coma since I was four years old and she was home. So we kind of grew near her, but we never met her. We never had a real mother aside us. Uh, and we had our father, which is super hard, hard worker. And he was super devoted to take care of her during the whole years at home with us because he wanted to take care of her, uh, which is a crazy and super devoting uh, challenge and mission to do in life. And he always gave us this approach of you are not you don't don't feel sorry of uh, of yourself. I mean, there are kids with bigger problems than you have, and this is your life. This is what you got. And I mean, just deal with it. Life is kind of shitty. You don't have a mom at home. You have tons of nurse. You have tons of uh, medical issues that are coming and going. This is not really the the, the parenthood that you want to feel. We kind of raise ourselves. I mean, we are three. Um, brothers and sisters, everyone kind of got his own face. But I feel that eventually we all took a, a lot of it through all of the challenges and the difficulties and so on. So I think I need to thank them both. My mom for just giving me the inspiration of what I want to do in order to be to create my own life, even without being there presently. And my dad, just because he really never felt sorry for us. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that it was really hard when I was a child because we never had a real childhood. But from the other hand, I think that he gave us the most amazing lessons out of this uh, tragedy. There's a, the psychologist Esther Perel. Have you heard the name? No. She's a French psychologist. She's a couple therapist. And uh, she started doing couple therapies for founders. And she said that when you were meeting, when you were discussing with the founder, it's not just the two of you in the room. There's always that person's past experiences and relationships and how they ended. And she suggested a question to ask. And she asks, were you raised for loyalty or were you raised for independence? And so that by answering that, you'll be able to understand what's the mechanism, mm -hmm. the operating system of the people you work with. And it sounds to me that you are, in, in a large part, were raised for independence. Yes, that's correct. And, and the other side of it is that your father was obviously a supremely loyal person looking after your mom. How... You know, does the, does the uh, leading by example where you see how he behaves and his devotion, but does your life situation, growing up with your siblings and having to take care of your own, like that's a, that's a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, we are very different persons. I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would choose what he chose at the age of 35 because I think he, he decided to devote his life to take care of someone that he knew that will never be back as a person so it will always be the disabled person that needs to be handled even i mean very physically with no real motions uh, that will go alive so and i think that i mean looking at him i mean was an amazing lessons for me of first of devotion and loyalty but i think that at the end of the day we have a very different dna yeah it's a such a complicated delicate topic that it's almost impossible to transition back to the day-to-day -day of, of your work, of your current profession. So let me go through a different angle with this and talk about the founder dynamic. So you have, you have the relationships that you choose in your life, of course, your spouse, your partners, your friends, and the founders, you spend a large portion of your time and day with them. You fight with them, you argue, you celebrate with them. Talk to us a little bit about founder dynamics. Okay, it's an interesting <laughs> one. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm the worst partner to be part to, to partner with. Okay, uh, really, I'm stubborn. I always I have my own opinions. If I decided that we need to do something this way, I mean, there is no other way. Uh, everybody knows that. You know, I can't hide it. I, I can't even try to do something differently because it's not gonna work. And I think that we managed to do a, an amazing dynamic between the founders because. Each one of us took a very, very specific role uh, and we are not trying to overlap the other roles. So we have this sentence that I eventually when, you know, when we can argue about product, for example, and I think that they are making a total mistakes in the way that they are doing things and so on, I can tell them, okay, I mean, I... That's it. I've done arguing about this. We've been shouting about this for an hour. That's it. That's your responsibility. Do whatever you want. If you mess up, it's on you. I mean, it's not on me. That's it. 
I think eventually you need to respect responsibilities. There are a lot of things that I'm dictating, okay? Um, I have dictator <laughs> personality at the end of the day, uh, but I think that it's still part of the thing that I can dictate as a CEO and they respect this. We have very, 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 or we had very little arguments during those years and we are partners already for four years uh, that uh, I can say that uh, impacted the relationship between us uh, because we really respect this. I think that in the past, uh, I heard from investors as well that my founders are not as, my co-founders are not as strong as I am. So they think that maybe it's not a good combination. And I was telling them, listen, I mean, you don't understand anything about what you're doing. I mean, they are the great to work with me. I couldn't work with people like me. It was a nightmare for me. It was a nightmare for them. So we are all executors, which I think it's super important uh, in the DNA of the company and what we are creating. Um, and we all respect the territories that we have. So they will never go and say, oh, we want to lead a fund fundraising round or we think that we should do it differently uh, because they just say, okay, I mean, we trust you. You'll do it. You do it in the best way. I mean, from the three of us, this is what we decided. That's it. And it's the same with product and it's the same with uh, R&D. What I'm curious about is how do you choose founders? How do you get the balance between picking someone who is different than you a different mentality, different motivations, needs, but also someone that completes you and, and, and kind of helps you be better. So I think it's almost like choosing a partner for life. It's 50% luck and 50% intuition. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, obviously, you don't know any, everything when you are starting your journey as a founder. Uh, also in here, I took a very direct approach because I knew I never founded a co-founded before a company with uh, co-founders. I knew, and, and there was a reason for it because I knew that I'm a terrible person to work with as a founder. <laughs> uh, so I was always easier to work with myself. And I was very transparent with them about this from the very, very beginning. I mean, and I think that if I would uh, co-found the company with people that are that have strong opinion and are stubborn as me it was i mean it it would probably be a way where we would spend tons of hours fighting and arguing and even if we at the end of the day you know just leave all aside and go have lunch it will just be really 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 um uh, tiring at the end of the day you you waste tons of energy and i mean there is limits to your time as a as, as basically as a co-founder in a startup that you can uh, waste on things. You need to act quickly. You need to decide quickly. Whether you're right or, you, or you're wrong, I mean, because you, you make ton of mistakes as well. Um, so, I mean, for me, the dynamics and the understanding that I'm co-founding a company with people that are much more peaceful than I am <laughs> by, by nature um, was a very, very important uh, key. And I think that, you know, it was really, I mean, 50% luck. I mean, good intuition, but a lot of luck just to, to choose the right co-founders. Intuition about them, but also deep knowledge of who you are and being able to say, guys, this is how I, this is how I operate. I need to be able to run the show. And I think that's very, very profound. I think self-knowledge is becoming an increasingly important uh, trait for founders. What would you advise people who find themselves in complicated, energy-draining founder relationships? Again, it's almost like marriage. I mean, decide if you're fighting for it or you're cutting it. I mean, don't don't just drain into it because, I mean, eventually it will, I mean, your, the company will just, you know, I mean, will be drained with you. So you need to act, uh, I mean, I don't say just give up, but really decide if you have something to do to solve this. Sometimes a solution can be really dividing the roles and responsibilities and respecting them. So even if you have, I mean, you don't agree with anything that your co-founder is doing currently on his territory and his roles and responsibilities, that's it. I mean, you, you, cannot, you, can, you, you cannot say a word about this because this, this is how you decided. And you need to respect this and you need to uh, obviously think that this is the right thing for the company eventually or to believe that it will bring the company to the right way. Otherwise... You know, I mean, I think that you need to decide because it's more than the company. It's your life. I mean, you're devoting your life and your days and your energy and your heart to it. I mean, if it's not a good journey, so, I mean, don't do it. Find another one. I had a CEO who really believed in saying, 
the ability to disagree and commit. I don't agree with how you plan to approach it. If I was, if it was my decision, I would have done it differently. But I respect that this is your domain, your autonomy, and I will commit to executing it as well. Very easy to say, sometimes very hard to do. I agree because you need to be very, very. It it needs to be very genuine with yourself. Do you really? Will you really commit this? Will you not just? spend your time saying, oh, I told you we should have done differently or try to overpass this. If yes, it's amazing. I mean, this is how it should be. Uh, if no, again, I mean, just life is too short to fight uh, the, the wrong fights. So let's take another, let's add another complexity to the dynamic. CEO, co-founder, and the other co-founders, that's one layer. Of course, we discussed investors, but now let's talk about executives. People who are not founders of the company, whether or not they have stock options or not, but they were hired in a professional capacity to uh, hire a um, qualified, successful uh, C-suite executive or whatever. You know, they come in with a list of, of requirements, a budget, a team, autonomy, agreeing on the guidelines, all these things they want to have in their toolbox in order to be successful in their role. Talk to us a little bit about the dynamic between the CEO and the co-founder and the professional executives you bring on board. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I think you need to, one, give them a very uh, strong trust that to lead their territory. But second, you need to assure that you are really believing that they are leading it correctly. And unfortunately, I mean, we I had senior management that it didn't went well because I felt that we see things completely differently. And obviously, uh, if I am in a situation that I think that they're not driving things correctly, it's my responsibility to the company and also for myself just to stop this and tell them, listen, I mean, you can be great, but it's not working. It's not working here. It's not working. The, the, the chemistry is not working. I mean, we see things differently. We do things differently. And again, it doesn't mean that they're not professionals. It just means that they are not uh, the right fit for the company culture. They're not the right fit for who they work with. And sometimes, I mean, I get it as a feedback. I mean, you, it's hard for us to work with you. And I said, yeah, but you know, I'm staying here. I mean, this is what it is. So unfortunately we need to, to stay apart. So I think that you need to respect professional territory a lot and to understand why you hand over the keys to this person, but it's also your responsibility to assure that it's being done the way that you think that it that, that should have been done. In the cases where it goes really well, what about those uh, those senior hires and the way they conduct themselves make it go as well? I think, again, it's about how you work together as a team. And if it works together as a team and if you manage to see things in the same way and you, you manage to drive through this journey together, it's amazing. I almost think that it's impossible that you'll have a senior executive that will tell you, okay, I want to do something that is completely different from what you are thinking or what we uh, will plan together. If you have a plan and uh, you need to agree on this and then you can just hand over the keys. And if they execute it well, I mean, it's amazing. You are super proud. I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing that happens in a company. And I have ama amazing leaders in a company that I think that they are doing amazingly well leading their territories. But if an executive will come and say, listen, I mean, I heard you, but I will do things completely different. I mean, I need, I think that, you know, it will be almost impossible to, to succeed. This is a relationship that is being built and it's a trust that is being built. And there is also, and obviously you need to support them. I think that you need to give them also the proper time to, to gain this uh, relationship and to gain the support and to gain the trust. But you need to check and to assure that after this period of time that you find it's really going to the way to where you want it to go. So there's a similarity between the dynamics between the founders and with executives, and that's... Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A common goal. You yes. know, if you give autonomy around, around a certain territory, you do it the way you think it is, as long as we are aligned on the goal. Of course, it removes a lot of the friction from the process. My question is, what happens when you hire executives that are so engaged, so committed to the company that they feel they have to flip the table and, and go against one of the co-founders or the CEO saying, no, 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 I like this company too much to let this decision, which is wrong, in my opinion, To go ahead cannot work obviously I mean if you don't have internal conflicts between co-founders already and you know it's kind of lands on, on on a ground where there is a conflict already it cannot work it's not the right place I mean with all the respect you know I mean we plant the seeds for this and if we think that this is the way we might be right we might be wrong but you know it's our uh, party currently one of the questions that are hardest to ask is sometimes so what do you need of me If I'm the executive and put my aspirations, my wants, my needs, you know, the methodologies that have worked for me in the past, like, what do you need me to do? It sounds like a disempowering question by saying, you know, I'm a blank canvas. You know, this is my skill set. How do you want me to execute it? Well, well I think for a CEO, that would be an empowering question to be asked. I agree because a CEO in a company has a vision that is stronger than the people that works for it. And if you take this great person that has amazing skill set that just joined your company, you need to assure that he is aligned to the vision that he is just basically building things according to this vision. You know the road can be completely different. I mean you can have two very similar companies aiming to completely different markets, completely different strategies, completely different products, and you need to assure that you are all aligned, otherwise you are just you know uh, wasting a lot of time in the road. Uh, so I think it's a very uh, important dialogue because when you step into a new place, you need to respect what you don't know and you need to respect how you build things for this company and not bringing something that you build for another company and just try to implement it in. It's very clever and it sometimes takes time. And if you are a big fancy hire, you know, there's a press release, there's an email, people have heard about you in the past, they've seen you come in and out of the office, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you feel like you need to deliver You know, from, from before you even started the job. And that sometimes could be very counterproductive because you don't understand the nuances. You don't understand the dynamic. You don't understand what your suggestion implies and whose work it, it kind of negates and the dynamics. So I think that's a very, very good advice. I agree. And I think this is why most of the M&A in the world are, at the end of the day are not succeeding because somebody decided to do this M&A because he felt that the synergy is great. And it might work, but if you bring the people and they're all coming with their own agenda and they already think that they know how to drive things and they don't just stop and reset things for a second, it will fail. We need to have people that are very, very hands-on. So, I mean, there are a lot of executives that can be great, but they want to kind of uh, manage things from the top and we do everything from bottom up. I mean, I need to win the details. I know everything in the company. I've done any, any role in the company. I'm still super involved in every, any process. And this is the culture that we build as a management team. And if you have someone that uh, is just coming and can have amazing advice, but he was like, yeah, we need to execute this and this and this. And okay, who's going to do it? You need to do it as well. I mean, great that you started with, great that you find the answers, but now just take it to the, uh, to the process level and just basically execute this. So I think this is one conflict that we realized and learned that it's just not working for us. We like, we, we really, we are, we are working very good when we are 
small teams, lean, uh, executing fast and touching everything that we are doing. Uh, so this is one thing that I keep telling people because for me, if this is not what you like to do in life, you, I'm not the right person to manage you and this is not the right company for you. The other thing is what we said before, um, which is the very Israeli approach of we solve things very, very directly. So we are trying to keep, and I'm very proud of it, that we have very little uh, ego in the company, uh, in the decision-making. We are really keeping an ego-free environment with the management, which I think it's super important for us because then people can really focus on work and just get things done. Um, and sometimes when you have people stepping in and you feel that they are already building their ego and responsibilities and so on, you it immediately, immediately change the energy in the room. So those are the people that we are trying not to bring into Papaya because I just think that this is not an organization they will be happy with and that we will be happy with them. Yeah. I love that you're saying this because sometimes when people switch on to the, their executive roles, they switch on from being being someone who can execute to being someone who's in the decision-making. My experience enables me to just make the right decision. But I think, especially in startups, maybe it's right in corporate, but in startups, you cannot be just in the, in the manager's manager making decision. You just simply can't. It doesn't work. Executive firepower is only effective if you have execution firepower. And, and that kind of does to the, to the second point you mentioned of, of egoless working. And I think that's super, super critical to understand. If you want to be an executive for a startup, you're not, it's not graduation. You don't finish. You don't get out of the trenches and into the boardroom. You still, you just have to do both. And yeah. if you don't enjoy the trenches, then, then you won't be sitting on that phone for a long while. And I think that's a super, super. Yeah. Thing. But I have to say that, I mean, you know, this is what works for us. I heard other approach. I mean, for example, in the US, they will explain, you know, you're bringing an executive. You will be, you will build a team of 50 people. But then the growth and everything that they will execute will be much more efficient than what you are building just by, you know, by your, uh, ha by your own uh, hands and, and just basically on the bootstrap uh, approach. So I, I don't know if it's the right approach and you cannot do it differently. I said that in Papaya, I think that we are so minded of doing things like this that it cannot work differently for us. The cultural differences are, are yeah. so big. Like if you're an executive in America, yes, you're expected to be able to hire the talent from your previous companies and bring them in. And and when you when you hire someone, you also buy into the Rolodex and everything. And when you hire someone in Israel, like you need a partner, you need a you need a sparring partner, you need someone who's gonna be there with you. It's closer to to the military camaraderie than it is to a corporate hierarchy. And and I love that you've put your finger on that. Being a female CEO. I wish this would have been a non-issue, but we actually got connected because we, as the production team of Startup Nightmares, couldn't reach the 50-50 male-female ratio. We had a lot of last-minute cancellations, a lot of female leaders with amazing, inspiring stories that didn't want didn't to deal with the exposure. Talk to us a little bit how, about how the landscape changed from when you resumed the uh, CEO range in 2008 and today. I don't know if it changed, to be honest. Uh, I think that I was more naive in 2008 than I'm today uh, in many uh, aspects. I was younger, so, I mean, it seems like, yeah, I mean, I can do whatever I want. I mean, there is no aspect, you know, army, we are doing everything equally. What's the, what's the issue? So I, I think that the first time that I really felt uh, that being a female CEO is an issue is when I started fundraising. Uh, and for me, it was like, whoa, what's going on in here? I mean, that's that's not a, shouldn't be an issue. So I don't know if it's changed. I think uh, still it's a lengthy process. I think that the conversation is more open. Uh, I think that a lot of things happens in the last few uh, years, like Me Too, which has a lot of uh, advantage and disadvantage to uh, the industry and, and to female CEOs or to female executives in, uh, in general. But I think that there is still a long way ahead of things uh, really change. And until it happens, I mean, if you are choosing to be a CEO and you are all, also happy to be a female, you need to take the responsibility. You need just to decide not to see it, just to ignore it, just not to take it uh, personally, because I mean, it is what it is. and. I'm not trying to educate anyone because I think that this is the wrong approach. I'm just trying to first 
fill myself or, or my uh, environment and surrounding with people that it's not an issue for them, but for real, not just for the statements and so on. And I uh, really believe that the changes is coming, you know, I mean, in, in small steps uh, and to accept this, it will not happen overnight. So what was the difficulty you came across, you know, CEO is a, being the female CEO, okay, done, but then raising money as a female CEO. What surprised you about the process? Questions like, when do I plan to give birth? How it's going to affect the company? Who's going to raise my kids? <laughs> How do I going to spend time abroad uh, while uh, having uh, babies at home? Uh, or not asking questions when I'm coming to speak with investors when I'm pregnant. And obviously understanding and, and understanding between the lines that this is a concern for them. There are lots of things I think that Eventually, uh, you will never ask a male if he's planning to get divorced, if what's going, what's going to happen if he's going to get divorced, or maybe he's, uh, he's, uh, he has some issues at home that can affect his uh, travel abroad and, and, you know, is, and the company as well. It's just becoming, I mean, it's still questions that you feel more, um, for one hand, people feel more uh, open to ask female CEOs. But from the other hand, if they don't ask it, it's even worse because then, you know, the conclusion that they make can harm the, 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 the company even more than just, I mean, ask the question, get my answers and let's get over with it. Wow. It's like a, almost a no-win situation. On one hand, the questions themselves are obviously discriminatory because, as you said, you wouldn't ask a man the same questions. So... You know, you might not want to ask these questions, even though they're a concern. But if you're not asking the question and you're making a decision without confronting these specific concerns, then you're being unfair because they may have a huge, a huge and beneficial answer. Like, how do you begin to un untangle that situation? What would be the best outcome for, for future female leaders? So I said it once over an interview after fundraising the Series A round, just... Try to avoid fundraising when you're pregnant. It makes things easier. Although I think that at the end of the day, we concluded the raising the, the fundraising when I had a two-month-old baby at home. It's much harder than just you know being pregnant. But at the end of the day, it makes the whole process much easier because you, nobody asks you what's going on at home. I mean, nobody knows what's behind doors. That's great. That's much easier in 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 so many ways. As I said, I mean, I think that you need to understand that this is the reality. You need to adapt to it. I always took the approach to tell people very, very, very openly, if they didn't ask, that I'm not planning to take maternity leave, that I'm very devoted to what I'm doing at work, that my partner uh, basically uh, will support everything that we, I, I'll need in order to get things done at work. But first, I think that they not always, they, they, it's almost almost sometimes hard for them to take it as granted or to believe you, which, you know, I mean, I cannot argue with their reality. I mean, if this is not something that is common in their reality. So, okay, obviously, I mean, it was like, what's going on with her? She's crazy. I mean. Wow. So even if you're giving really good, really good answers to how you deal with it, you can, you can come across the biases that are saying, okay, I've never met a woman that can actually do that. She's insane. Like I, it's not reliable that, that she would be able to do what she says she's going to do. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, taking it back before I was pregnant or had kids, I remember that I, I was reading about Marisa Meyer that just got nominated to lead the Yahoo at the time. And the whole, I mean, there was tons of uh, articles about her and how she came back to work. I don't know, I mean, a few weeks after she gave birth to twins and what type of uh, person she is and what type of mother she is. And, you know, I, I read this and I didn't felt that, okay, why they're writing about this? I was like, okay, this is interesting. I mean, why is she doing it? Now that I'm in her situation, I can completely understand that, you know, you don't need to judge anyone in this situation. You need to understand that, I mean, you know, being a parent basically has tons of, I mean, it doesn't have to be one playbook that you read and it is what it is. But yeah, I mean, Obviously, it's a situation where I feel that eventually some people, some investors, some managers, I mean, they cannot cope with answers because it's really against everything that they believe that this is should be, I mean, this is how the world should behave or what they've been taught at home or what they saw at home. 
So just really try to to find the people. It's hard, yeah, but I mean, th- there are people around there that think that it can be done differently. Just stick with them. Don't fight with it. I mean, against people that they just don't believe that this is the right way. I would also add to that the little I can is that you know if an investor is willing to give up on fifty percent of the potential uh, of the potential leaders just because of their gender or what it may entail in the future, then of course they're not being very effective in competing uh, over over the biggest most promising companies and I think papaya would be an example thank you I think that we are still not fifty percent and this is one of the things I think that you know uh, female founders are growing by the days and it's very very exciting and there are tons of amazing companies currently but still uh, it's far from being fifty percent of the industry when it will be fifty percent of the industry even thirty percent and you'll have great success stories you'll say okay I mean it's global it's not an issue any longer so we'll need to wait for that so what advice would you give companies who want to create a gender equal working environment and empower the female employees to go and thrive I mean I know it's a question on a lot of people's mind because they feel like they may be not doing enough or not doing something right but they don't exactly know how to approach it we don't have for example female policy for working we have parents policy I mean if you are a father and you are a, a mother or if you don't have kids but you have other hobbies, You have the same uh, basically benefits of uh, working uh, uh, work-life balance and working from home hours because I think that you need to keep a very uh, equal environment I mean if I have kids and I'm happen to be a mother it doesn't mean that I have more rights than somebody that is a father if I want to create equality I need to create equality and this is goes with everything that we are doing I mean in salaries in basically in positions and so on we do we do keep 50 percent a management of a female currently and so because we worked hard to create this I mean because we really chose the most talented people to do so and I think that the dialogue needs to change from all aspects and I Uh, I, I started before and said there is I mean there are some sacrifices I don't I don't believe in dialogues when people are coming and say I want to be an executive in a startup but I want to leave the office early three times a week uh, and raise my kids it's not it's not how it works because if we have a management meeting at 5 p.m because we are a global company and this is how we we, we find time that works with all and I cannot respond it just because somebody wants to be in those hours with these kids and it's also it's not fair because I mean they cannot have better rights so it has its own sacrifices I know that um, sometimes I get uh, some uh, comments uh, or criticism about this uh, because uh, some female founders are telling me that I'm not uh, supportive enough to uh, to the time that female needs to spend with their kids I don't think that you can be a real executive in a startup if you need to have this balance I mean you can just pause it for a few years you can decide that this is not the right time or Or you need to find solutions but I mean leading team in a startup as an executive has responsibilities and it has to be a very very strong priority if your team feels that every time that I mean that three times or two times a week you have other priorities than the company it will be very hard for them to be committed that's really drives that message home because the story of you can have it all no. is, is it doesn't stick I mean you can have it all just not at the same time. Maybe if you want to fully leave the startup executive dream, this is what it entails, female or male. I agree. I agree. And to make it a little harder for you, just before we wrap up, as a, as a male founder, I am unfamiliar with the experience that female have in the workforce because I've never been one, maybe in the future. But you know, what should male founders be, be looking for in order to make their companies more, more accommodating for, for female employees, female executives? First, I think that uh, just focus on talents and really uh, judge people by talents and also look on the really on, on the long run. I've hired people when they were uh, females when they were like six months pregnant, seven months pregnant because I mean it doesn't really matter. I mean if they're good employees, they'll be there after the maternity leave. It's not because that now they need to take three, three months, four months, six months maternity leave that they will be less I mean fit good fit for the company. And you actually win people that are there for you forever because you know you gave them the most important thing you gave them confidence so really try to just eliminate all of the background noises that you have about 
oh, maybe she has small kids, maybe she has uh, older kids. Just ask really the person, what are you, tr- are, you, are you bringing to the table? What are you, how are you going to commit to this company? What are you looking to have? And I think that this is 50% of it, just listening and assuring that you hear the other side. Because in many cases, what I hear from females uh, executives that they're trying to convince that they can do it. And they're trying to sell, I can have it all, no worries, I mean, it's on me. But this is not the right dialogue. The dialogue should be very, very open. What are the things that, you know, I mean, maybe you cannot travel abroad. This is okay. I mean, that's, I mean, in in normal days, I mean, it can be an issue. And it should be an issue that should be raised before in an interview. Because maybe you can do something else that does not require it. But if it's becoming an obstacle to your job, I mean, this needs to be discussed. Really try to eliminate the barriers and also... I mean, it's hard to say because obviously when you are coming, nobody wants to be the first female executive in a company because then you said, okay, I'm going to sit in a table full of men all of my, I mean, in the next year or so. So trying to bring them, I mean, as a couple, I mean, if you are hiring currently, try to bring two executives together. If you don't have any female founders, uh, it might help uh, with just basically adjusting and changing some of the culture in the company very, very quickly. And I think also very important, I mean, thing that's, I think it's disappearing, but I still see it. Have zero tolerance to uh, jokes that are unrelated, that are basically sex offended, that are, that can harm anyone. I mean, regardless if it's a female, if, I mean, it's a racist uh, um, gender, uh, uh, anything else. Try to keep a very, very supportive environment because I think a lot of things happens from the DNA in the company. And if it's not a very clean environment, uh, it can be very hard. In an environment where, you know, people are very divided on certain topics, political or otherwise, is, should people check the political opinions out the door, like don't bring it into the office? Or is there room for, for those types of differences? Do you just ban it completely? No, first, you know, we are all persons, we're all humans. You can have your own political views. You can have other views. This is okay as long as you are not bringing it into the company culture. So, I mean, if we have like a group chat of the company, I would not allow anything that can be offended or can be, you know, I mean, a political opinion and so on. But, you know, lunchtime, this is where you debate. And, you know, we had like three elections this year in Israel. There were tons of debates. There are tons of uh, different uh, uh, opinions and so on. We are trying to keep it very, very positive. We are trying to laugh on it. We have a team in the company that this is a team of three that is coming from completely, completely, completely different uh, parties. It's so funny to, to hear them like debating and then working together. Uh, so I think that we can all kind of separate between what we feel. We would not tolerate, obviously, racism or something that is uh, uh, that can harm someone else. We have tons of diversity in the company. Uh, and I think that when we are hiring people, we are uh, saying it very clearly because if they have an issue, for example, in the past we even had transgender in the organization. And we had people coming saying, I mean, it's an issue for us. I mean, we, we, I mean, we, we don't feel comfortable. Said, okay, so I mean, that's not the right fit for you. We have Arabs, we have Orthodox, we have we have everything basically, and I think that uh, it's an amazing mixture. At the end of the day, we are all very minded to work and very minded to the mission that we are solving. You also learn to see the people behind it. I think one of the things that in Israel we are very bad, and maybe globally, is that we don't meet people that are very different from our culture. It gives you the opportunity to meet them and to understand that there are people at the end of the day. I mean, you know, you can have different opinion, you can have completely different life, but there are so many similarity in things that you have in life, which this for me is the most amazing thing in Papaya, that we bring people to see other people's life and create this diversity. And they really appreciate it more because it's very authentic. We couldn't have uh, ended on a more positive note than this. <laughs> Enat, thank you so, thank so you. much. This has been an absolute masterclass. Uh, your journey is exciting and there's more to come personally and professionally. And we hope to be here to cover that as well. And with that, we finish off. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.